Our gospel reading for this morning comes from the gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again, so that Jesus and the disciples could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called to them, and, and he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his, mother's and, his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Well, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our poor dog, Charlie. Charlie is our 10-year-old golden retriever, and he limps, and he has one eye, and he spends approximately 90% of his life just laying around on the floor. He does very little, but Charlie gets blamed for everything. Who finished that snack? Charlie. Did somebody pass gas? Definitely Charlie. I can't find my phone. Charlie. It's become, become kind of a running joke in our house that if something bad has happened, Charlie did it. And Charlie has the most important trait for filling this role. He can't talk back and defend himself. He just innocently looks up at you with his one good eye and when he hears his name and just gives you a look like, I didn't do it. Having four kids and two dogs, it is easy to see how blame gets passed around from one person or one dog to another. It starts early when they're kids. You can literally be looking at a kid do something and tell them to stop, and they'll turn straight face to you and say, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. And you say, no, literally, I just saw you do it just now. And they'll insist, no, uh no, I didn't. You can say, I have a video of it on my phone that I can play back for you. Watch. Nope, wasn't me. At least they get it honestly. We hear that same kind of blame game going on in our first reading from Genesis today. Adam and Eve get caught eating of the fruit from the tree of the good and evil, the one thing, the one thing that God told them not to do. And the serpent tricked Eve and she ate the fruit and then she passed it on to Adam and he ate the fruit and when God comes to the garden and is looking for them, Adam immediately throws Eve right under the bus she gave me the fruit. She did it. And we've been blaming Eve for lots of things ever since. 
And then Eve rightly points out that the serpent was the one who tempted her, and so she ate. Nonetheless, they are exiled from the Garden of Eden and destined to live hard lives because of this transgression. These founding stories in Genesis, like this one, seek to explain why things are the way they are. Why is life hard? Why is childbirth painful? Was there a better, easier time? Is this what God intended for us? And these stories are so enduring, I think, because they do such a good job of capturing our human nature. So good that I can see our kids and dogs and ourselves reflected in the story of our ancient forebears, Adam and Eve. Stories are meant to ask questions like, why do we always want the one thing that we're not supposed to have? Why do we think we're smarter than God? Why does humankind keep tripping all over itself? Or, as St. Paul said, why do I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things that I should? In this sense, when we talk about original sin, eating from the fruit of the tree, it's not just a matter of chronology, as in this was the first sin that happened, but it is the founding sin, the origin, the source, the root of all manners of sin that came afterward. Remember that Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the serpent told them that if they did, they would be like God. That was the temptation. Not because the fruit was so good to the taste or they were excited by the transgression of doing something they weren't supposed to do, but they wanted to be like God. And that is the granddaddy of all other sins. Everything can be traced back to that impulse. And so when we get to our reading for today, this is simply the cover-up, the blame game, the obfuscation of what they did and why. As I read the story, the underlying sin, the original sin, is this desire to be like God, to be all-knowing and all-powerful and above all, and also to sit in judgment on others and all things, to be entirely self-sufficient with no need or of or dependence on others, to live consequence-free. And these are the very things we are wrestling with in our culture right now. You can see the fingerprints of Adam and Eve all over it, their desire and their weakness, their self-justification and their blame. From the pandemic, which was made worse at great cost because we failed to recognize our interdependence as the human community, to polarization and conspiracy theories which are fueled by sitting in judgment over others. I mean, even fans at sporting events are throwing things at players and spitting on players and having racial epithets. And did you see the story about the guy who tried to run on the 76ers court during the playoff game and the security guard had to tackle him and take him down? I think that security guard should be signed by the Eagles for the coming season. And there's a lot of pent-up anger and sadness and grief that we don't know what to do with. And we're relearning how to be in the company of others. We are bristling at the fact of accountability for our actions, both presently and in the past. Like Adam and Eve, we want the benefits of being like God, but without the responsibilities that come with it. We like to say that we live in unprecedented times, except this thinking, this human weakness and these behaviors, and those who would take advantage of those and weaponize them for their own gain, like the serpent. Well, they are as old as time itself. 
the Bible and our faith show us that this is true, and they hold out for us that there is a different way, and that although we will trip up over ourselves because we are human, we can transcend our most base instincts and live in a different way. St. Paul told the Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. In the message translation, this passage reads like this. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever. And here's the thing, and I've never thought about it quite this way before this week. Jesus, Jesus redefines what it means to be like God entirely. Jesus redefines what it means to be like God. So in our mind, to be like God is to be above all. But Jesus, who was born into this world to show us um, that God is like, and to be like God is to be with all and for all and for others. Not above all, but with all and for all and for others. Jesus showed us to, that to be like God is to be humble and patient, a healing presence, to be of service, accepting, loving, understanding, insisting on justice and striving for peace, laying down our lives for others, being givers of comfort and purveyors of hope. This is what it means to be like God, Jesus said. This is what it means to live good and godly lives. This is what we are reminded of when we come to church in person or online. The narrative and the choices that the world presents to us often are a stark either or, one or the other, us or them. And that is absolutely insufficient and sorely incomplete and do not serve you or me or the whole of humankind. Jesus is inviting us to be like God, but in a way that God really is, not how we imagine God to be. The Bible and the church are the places that we come to learn and practice a different way of seeing the world and being in the world. Because of this, I've started lately thinking about the church as the consulate of the kingdom of God or the embassy of the kingdom of God. And let me explain. Um, for our honeymoon back in 2000, Jenny and I backpacked around Europe for six weeks, and uh, we flew into Amsterdam in the midst of a historic rainstorm, and everything for the three days we were there seemed waterlogged, including us. We stayed at a hostel with four other people. We were jet-lagged. We exceeded our daily budget each day, and so we had to find free ways to fill lots of time while still staying dry. We were in Amsterdam, which was awesome, but it was not quite the start of the adventure that we expected. And then we made our way to our next stop, to Copenhagen. And the plan was to stay with friends of Jenny's family. 
the Canadian ambassador to Denmark and the Arctic Circle, and her husband, a longtime family friend. So after navigating the trains to get to Copenhagen, which was a little trick in and of itself, we were met at the train station there by Witt, the ambassador's husband, um, and we were driven to the official ambassador's residence. They gave us the third floor all to ourselves. The staff did our laundry. They made us little Danish sandwiches, and we felt human again. And Witt drove us around to see all the sights. It could not have been more of a contrast from where we came and it righted our trip. And it wasn't lost on us that while we were in the residence, we were actually on Canadian soil because of diplomatic agreements that countries have with one another for consulates and residences and embassies. It felt like an entire reset to our trip, touching home base again, literally, and regathering ourselves, and then heading back into Europe on our way to Stockholm. We have good friends in Ottawa, uh, Gary and Sabina, and Sabina is the German ambassador to Canada. We have really weird friends, you know, but you live in Ottawa, a capital. You tend to um, have friends like these. So um, we have Gary and Sabina are friends of ours. She's the ambassador, and Gary is her husband. Uh, And Gary worked in the Canadian Foreign Service for many years, which is how they met, and he was the best man at my in-law's wedding. And so we've been to their house, the German ambassador's residence in Ottawa, for gatherings and for Christmas dinners and programs and so on. And our kids love the fact that when we visit them at the ambassador's residence, they are in Germany. So much so that when they list the countries that they have been to, which we only started after the sabbatical because they hadn't been to anywhere else besides here in Canada, they always include Germany on the list. Um, The one time they've actually set foot in Germany was at the airport in Frankfurt, which they count, and they count Gary and Sabina's house. So they've been to Germany twice. They love to tell that story. Just ask them anytime. Stepping into church on a Sunday morning for worship, worship when we worship something other than ourselves and are reminded that we are undoubtedly not God, and when we come to church at other times, is like stepping into the consulate of the kingdom of God a place with different rules and identities, practices and behaviors, beliefs and convictions. When we step into church, we step out of the world. We touch our home base. We are reminded of who we are, what God is really like, and how to live and love. We are in the world but not of the world, and we are sent back out to love and serve the world into a place that is more loving and more peaceful, more just, and more what God intended for us from the very beginning. In this time at worship, we are re-inculcated into the stories of God, into the stories of God's people, and even into our own stories. We rediscover our true selves. We shake off the temptation, lies, and misdirections that the world offers And we are reminded that there is another way, the way of Jesus and the way of love. And this is just one hour of the week, one hour in a week of 168 hours, but that is why it makes such a big difference. Like a conversation with a good friend who knows us better than we know ourselves, or taking a walk or a hike or a visit with your grandkids or doing something you love, these times transport us to a time within time. They remind us of what is really real, how loved we are and how loving we can be. 
and enable us to make our way through the world's temptations, confusions, and conflict. And so, as it says in the message version of our reading from 2 Corinthians, we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. Amen.